Um, I've been gone for the first two weeks of, well, the last two weeks I've been gone. I've been on vacation. I've been in the Dominican Republic for the last couple weeks because it was my parents' 40-year anniversary, and I got to renew their vows on the beach. And so it was this big trip. They pulled out all the stops. That was a treasure for me as a son, by the way, to be able to look at my mom and dad. They were bawling. They could not keep it together. But we renewed their vows. And this, this trip was over the top. I mean, I've spoken with some of you about it individually. And I'm not used to vacations like this. I'm just not. It was an all-inclusive resort. The whole goal of this resort was to gorge yourself and self-indulge to just a weird level you know, um, just to be all about yourself, to sit and just drink it all in. And I'm not used to that. Some of you are probably used to vacationing like I do, where you fight with the salespeople down in the lobby for the continental breakfast. You don't have room service. You actually pick it up and take it back up to your own room yourself, a little piece of cantaloupe and a cold bagel. That's how I do vacation. So this was over the top to have room service come, you know, as we get all geared up for our massages and things. And it was just total luxury. I've never, it was bordering on being treated as a celebrity, probably the closest to a celebrity I'll ever be treated. It was awkward maybe, a little foreign. I got used to it pretty quick. And then I realized when we're sitting in coach on the way home with all the sunburned spring breakers, I thought, man, it's all over now. No more room service, no more anything. Um, But on day four of this trip, I went for this run um, outside of the the boundary, I guess, outside of the compound of paradise. And and I'm running on this road and into real Dominican Republic, into the real DR, right? And, And man, it's a totally different place on the other side of the wall. Totally different. Little scooters whizzing by me with three people on them. Three people, not motorcycles. That'd be dangerous. Scooters. It's coming by and they're all holding on for dear life. There's chickens running around because they are about to have their heads cut off. Um, I kept hearing this radio and I thought, man, how are they getting a radio so loud? And it's because they had burned out cars with no tires on blocks and they were just using them as radios. They were just using the speaker system in these cars. So these big giant radios that were cars at one time. Okay, tire fires, people burning their trash. It was different, totally different. And I realized how oblivious I'd become to all of that because I'm sitting on the other side of the fence with a drink with an umbrella in it with one foot in the ocean and the other in the sand, just totally gorging myself. And as I'm going on this run, there's this, the dichotomy that's before me. God kind of gave me this metaphor that led me into prayer. And I ended up praying, God, please don't let legacy... (laughs) Please don't let us ever become a church like that. Don't let us become a church where we are all about gorging and laying up our own treasures and feasting on everything that's around us while the real world is burning their trash, right? While the real world is out here just barely making it. Let us not be like that. James, today, is dealing with a people who are feeding themselves to their own demise, And actually to the demise of the community of God and to the demise of the mission of God. People were hurting around them because of the the level of luxury that the rich were living in. So we're going to just jump into the text and unpack it a little bit. Um, We're going to start in verse 1. We're only doing six verses today. and We'll pick it up next week from then on. But it starts like this. Go ahead. You could advance it. Come now. Now this is the way it started off last week too, isn't it? This is James being bold and getting their attention. He says, come now, you rich, weep 
and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. <laughs> well, welcome to Legacy Church. <laughs> I look forward to encouraging you today. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Wow. So theologians, scholars are actually split right down the middle on whether James is talking to Christians or not because of how hard this is, right? I'd like to submit to you he's talking to the rich, be both Christians and non-Christians. Ultimately, we have to remember this is a letter to the church. What James is saying is occurring within earshot of the church. So ultimately, it doesn't matter for us. If it's a judgment against those who are lost and away from God, we can grow from it. If it's a challenge and an admonishment towards Christians, we can grow from it. But James is throwing a flag. He's got a a big problem right now because these people are hoarding luxury while others around them are suffering. Even worse than that, the hoarding and the laying up of treasure is happening at the cost of the poor. I guess even worse than that, it's happening at the cost of the poor because they're stealing from them. They're robbing them. They're defrauding them. And I guess to get even worse than that, they're condemning them and sometimes putting them to death. That might look like taking them to a debtor's court and then to a debtor's prison, right? So as humanity, we've been known to do some pretty junky things to each other, right? We've been known to be harsh with each other. This is one of those occasions, right? So James here, I don't know if you caught this or not, is mad. James is mad, right? He's speaking through grit teeth. This is the way I imagine it. Talking like this. Foam. Blood vessels. It's got eye black on. You know, tattoos, an anvil on one arm and a cross on the other. And he's just talking. Probably needed to take a nap when he was done with this. He's mad. This is the structure of a prophetic judgment. This is what prophecies look like. Or the prophets, this is how they would speak. Right? right before the boot drops. This is how it works. So the Jews would have known this. He's talking to Jewish Christians. They would have seen this. The only time the Jews are used to hearing people talk like this is when a prophet is about to let it rip. And whenever that happens, nations are moved. Judgment comes. They're paying attention, right? So like a prophet, James does this incredible thing. Prophets do this in the Old Testament too. They will give life to lifeless things. They'll personify lifeless things. And he does it here with corrosion and stolen wages. He says, what you guys are doing is so ridiculous, so ridiculous, that even the things you put all of your trust in and the things you chase after, those things that don't even have a voice, even those things cry out against you and will judge you and witness against you. That's what he's saying. Now, right about here is typically where I would say, get him, James. Get him, baby. Get him. Don't let him get away with that. Stick it to him. Give him the left. Give him the right. This is what I do. And then God reminds me that it's me. And I always hate it when God does that. I want it to be about you. 
You know what I'm saying? But it's about me. James is talking to me. I don't like that. I have to ask myself, and I've been asking myself all week, what are the rust, the corrosion, what are the stolen wages that preach against me, that testify against me? I have them. I have them. Where do I hoard my luxury? That's the question you're going to need to be asking yourself this morning. Now, I'm going to come to define luxury as three things that make it easy for us. It sticks to the mind. We don't have luxury in just money, right? That's being a little short-sighted. This is more than just about money. We usually put our luxury in time, talent, and treasure. I nuanced this a few weeks ago when I spoke with you guys, but this is probably a little bit of a deeper treatment on it. Our time, our talent, and our treasure is That's the treasure inside of our treasure box, okay? So our reflex when we read passages like this, maybe you're like me, I read this, my reflex is, is I'm I'm not rich. This can't be for me, right? I'm not one of the one percent. This is for a one percenter, right? I'm middle class. I'm probably lower middle class. Maybe some of you are poor and you're reading something like this and you're thinking, this isn't about me. But the truth is, is back then there was no middle class. Middle class is actually a pretty recent social invention. Early 20th century, late, late 19th century, maybe. The middle class started to emerge and evolve then. Back then, there was a drastic, drastic distinction between the very rich and the very poor. Now, if you were to cram us in a global statistic, we would be considered rich today. I know that now when I read this. We'd be seen as rich. But many times we want to skim over passages like this, don't we? We don't really, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. Sometimes we read the Bible and we don't see a thread of relevance. It doesn't resonate sometimes, passages like this. We just blow right through it, right? But the truth is, is whenever we do, and this is for free, whenever you do come against passages like this in the Bible that they don't seem to connect, there feels like there's a disconnect, Maybe there's a challenge or an admonishment or a do this or don't do that. Whenever you come to passages like this where your instinct is to say that's not talking to me, always look at what is being said behind what is being said. What is the sin behind what he's calling sin? What is the issue behind the issue? What is the thought behind the thought? Because let's be honest, there are no wealthy landowners in here that are grounding and pounding poverty-level families for all of their money until they have no more money, and then they take them to court, hopefully to have them killed. Does anyone in here do that? Raise your hand. Oh, me, me. No one does that? No. But what's going on in their heart before all of this takes place? The same thing that goes on in our heart. The sin behind the sin. There, James has a lot to say to us. There, James has a lot of words for you and for me. Look at, um, go ahead and advance the slide. I think I have this set up. Yeah. These are three statements that are said in this text. One is, you have laid up treasure in the last day. True. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. True. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. These are three things that he was dealing with the rich on. These are three things that we do today. These are three things that we're tempted to do every single day. These people, they lived on earth as if there was no God. They lived on earth as if there was no eternity, no cross, no Christ, no empty tomb, no people of God, no mission of God, none of that. They, as Wes said last week, they lived as practical atheists. That's how they lived. Their life motto is, I'm getting mine, I'm keeping mine, you're on your own. 
So self-indulgence, it comes and it trumps self-sacrifice. Our own personal little mission trumps God's grand narrative, his big mission. So is it starting to get warm now? Does that resonate a little bit more? A little bit more applicability in that for you and I know it is for me. I know it is for me. Listen, daily, there is not a single day I wake up and this is not a temptation of mine. Every single day I wake up and I am tempted to hoard my luxury and lay up my treasure so I don't have any more left to invest in you or the city. That's my temptation if I'm being totally honest with you. This is a word to me. These people are becoming wealthy because they're not generous. They are, in fact, hoarding, and they are, in fact, stealing. And according to James, they're making themselves fat for their own slaughter. Did you catch that in there? Fat for their own slaughter. Think, this is the imagery he's trying to evoke in there. Think of the, the, the cow, the big fat cow on some cattle ranch somewhere, moping around, grazing. On. This is the cow. I'm a big fat cow, and I really like my life, and I'm going to eat a little bit of grass over here. I'm going to go take a nap. I'm going to go take a grumpy right by that tree. I'm going to go eat some more grass. I'm going to go drink some water. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to do it all over again, right? Why? Because the cow's getting fatter and fatter and fatter. What does the cow not know? It doesn't know I'm going to eat him for lunch. Today I'm eating that cow for lunch. He's getting fat and fat and fat for his own slaughter. This is what James is using to paint a portrait for his listeners and for us. God is dealing with self-indulgence. He's dealing with living within our own luxury on earth as if there was no God as practical atheists. Therefore, it's a word for me. Therefore, it's a word for you. It's something that we need to grow from. So, we need to think a little bit bigger than money. A little bit bigger than money. Because that's not where all of our luxury is, right? As we just said. This is a little bit bigger than stealing from poor people. Right? It's about how we treat our stuff. It's about how we treat our time, talent, and treasure and what that says about what we believe about God. What does your stewardship, this is a question for you, what does your stewardship teach your children and your friends about Jesus and his gospel? Aye, aye. What does the way you handle your time and your talent, how does that teach people, how does that teach people about God's mission on earth today? Does it inform them? Does it teach them? I need help on this. I know I do. Now, James is writing to all of us, so I say we not skim over this today. I'd like to apply it, and I'd like to find Jesus Christ in this. This is a little bit of a rowdy word, okay? It's a little bit of a rowdy sermon. But I want to look at how we do this. I want to look at why we do this. I want to look at what we can do. And hear me on this. This is important. The answer to, because if I was to stop speaking right now, most of you would go home going, man, he didn't really preach, but I know I need to try harder. I know I need to do more. He's right. I'm not investing. I'm just consuming. I'm just floating. I need to do more. That's what most of you would leave with. That's what I would be tempted to leave with. I would suggest that's not a good remedy for this. That's not the good answer for this. Because let's say you do go home and you try really hard. And you apply a little bit of structure, a little bit of rules, some accountability. And it makes you perform to where you do invest more time, talent, and treasure. You see that as a win. Right? But actually, you're the hero now. This is a word about Jesus. But you become the hero. And wait until you don't do well. Then you're the loser. Because it's all about you. It's all about you. There's got to be something better for us here than this trying harder. 
I mean, yeah, there are works being prescribed for us in James. We've been going over it for a couple months now, three months, I think. There are works being prescribed, but these aren't works that you are saved from. These are works you are saved to. These are works that you are saved to do, not works you were saved because you did. Big difference. Big, big difference. If you get that order mixed up, you become a Pharisee and a legalist. And a lot of you have grown up. I did. A lot of you have grown up in a deal and a structure and maybe even people preaching to you, and this would be wrong preaching, by the way, that if they even pause it, that if you just try harder, perform better, do better, climb the rungs in the right order, then God will love you, bless you, and show you more favor. Don't make him mad, though, because he'll bump you down a few notches. And then you have to work your way up before you even have confidence to ask for things. Right? And it's always this fight, isn't it? Just gritting the teeth. I'm going to climb the ladder until one day I'm going to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Right? And that's the fight, is to hear that from God's mouth. The truth is, Christian, the reason you have grace and favor resting on you is because he looked at another and said, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because Jesus did what we could never do. Because the works he performed were performed in our stead because we never could do this. He is the worker of ultimate magnitude because we could not do it. He did it. So what does this mean? It means you are free to fail today. And you're free to grow. You're free to fail. You could leave this room and do the opposite of everything I say. And if you're a Christian, God cannot love you any less than he does right now and than he did when he was hanging on the cross for you. You are free to fail, friends. You're free to ignore what I say today. Does that sound sloppy of me to say that? You're free. You're free to fail. You're also free to grow. You're also free to grow, to yes, perform, and yes, obey, but not because it gets you anything from God, because you've already gotten a treasure from God, a treasure of huge magnitude. You're free to fail, and you're free to grow, and God doesn't love you any different. You don't get any more or any less favor, any less blessing. That is the beauty of grace. That's why grace is as beautiful as it is. So, Luke, we know this. You say it all the time. I want you to keep it in mind today, though. It's going to be easy for you to walk out and get real legalistic with this. Right? It'd be very easy for this to happen, because I want to look at your treasure box. I want you to crack it open, and I want you to look at your talents, your treasures. I want you to look at it. Let's look at talent for a minute, since I just brought it up. I mean, some of you are so wise, and you're so knowledgeable, and you're good teachers, and you're very priestly, you're good pastors, you have a pastoral heart. Some of you are great teachers. Some of you are incredibly encouraging. Some, some people in God's kingdom have all of these beautiful, everybody in God's kingdom has these beautiful attributes that God gives us for the body and for mission, and yet we sit on them, and we hoard them, and we collect them, and we live off of the fat of the land, making ourselves fat. The body hurts, and the mission hurts, and people are burning tires outside of our camp. And I can do this, and listen, I get it. I get it. If, these are some promises I can make you. If you do invest your talents, your gifts into people, you'll get burned. It won't take long either. You'll get burned. You'll be inconvenienced, Right? It'll happen. You'll get this. Some of you have a great word of wisdom and knowledge. Oh, man, I just, brother, I got a word of wisdom for you. I woke up in the morning, it was just rumbling around, and I knew it was for you. And, 
man, you just feel the Holy Spirit moving through you as you give them this word of wisdom and you're so excited and they're looking at you and you're looking at them and a tear comes out of your eye and you walk out so encouraged and you're thanking God for using you at such a huge magnitude and they're going to turn around and do the exact opposite of what you just gave them advice to do. They're going to do the exact opposite. Some of you have this beautiful gift of encouragement. You're going to encourage and just really dump truck your love into somebody. Man, God loves you so much. And whenever I see you do this, friend, you remind me of Jesus. It's so exciting to be around you, not because of you, but because of what Jesus has done in you. And and you're going to go on and on and on. And they're going to hear something different and get offended with you. (laughs) That's going to happen. You're going to volunteer for something and you'll be forgotten. You'll feel underappreciated, right? Hey, you'll see somebody waver off course and pick up sin in their life. And as a brother or a sister, you'll go and you'll try to collect them and bring them back. It's what loving people do. Hey, man, I just want to let you know I've been watching you and your marriage or watching you and your schedule or watching you or whatever, and I, and I see sin there. But, man, listen, I'm just as bad, and I want to walk with you. I want to walk with you, and, and, and let's do this thing called Christianity together. Let's live it together. You're going to do that, and you know what they're going to do? They're going to rip into you. They're going to waylay on you because of what you're doing and what you're saying. This is true. This will happen. I mean, what if you fail? What if you invest your talents and you totally fail? You do the best you can and you totally fall on your face. That's always fun, isn't it? Isn't that fun? I'll never forget when I was in Tampa. um, When we lived there, we had a brother in our church who had been a pastor for a long time, and now he was working in a funeral home industry. And so, and he was really good at it because he was, he was a double threat is what I called him because he was good at his job and he was also an ex-pastor or I don't guess you're ever an ex-pastor, but he was a pastor. And so he was able to do such a beautiful job, but he said, look, I can't be everywhere at once. And sometimes I just need somebody that can be pastoral in a moment. Can I put you guys kind of talking to me and the staff? Can we put your names down on this list just in case we need to call you? Can we do that? Sure you can. I didn't think he'd actually do it. I just said it because I was being nice. I mean, put me on a list. I'll feel better about myself, but I hope you never call me, you know? And one day, driving, northbound I-75, not like this driving, but like this driving. You know what I'm saying? My time. Radio blasting. My phone rings. Mm Mm-hmm. It's him. Hey, Luke, I really need your help. What road are you on right now? And I mean, I was like one exit away. (laughs) He said, hey, listen, it's so-and-so cemetery. I've got two young women, a mother and a daughter, and they're by themselves by an open grave. It's a graveside funeral that no one came to. No pastor, no military, no friends, no family, no nothing. Two women. And it was this estranged relationship, too. It wasn't like they loved dad or anything. It was this weird thing going on, even in the family. And they're bawling their eyes out, and they need pastoral help. I can't get there. Can you go there? I can't hear you, man. Can you say that again? I didn't want to go. I'll be honest with you. I'd never done a funeral before. I'd never done it. I didn't want to look bad. I didn't want to fail. I didn't want to put my talent into something and have it not work out just perfect. Right? I went. I did do it. I sat there. And I think some of it, they appreciated the other. They just kind of were like, what? You're a pastor? Are you like an assistant pastor or something? <laughs> Listen, people are going to look at you as you give your talents to the body and to the mission. They're going to judge you. They're going to mooch off at you. 
They're going to inconvenience you. They're going to blow off whatever you say. They did this to Jesus Christ. We did this to Jesus Christ. And he says, just as I was sent, I'm sending you. That's what we're signing up for, right? He intentionally, Jesus intentionally gave of his time and his talent and his treasure, knowing ahead of time that we would abuse and murder him. Think about that. And then he sends us like he was sent. But listen, I get it, folks. We want to preserve everything. We want to keep it nice and neat and conventional and tidy. No contention. That's my motto. No contention. No turbulence. No static. Predictably comfortable. Pass me another pina colada. You know what I'm saying? That's what I want. And some of you have a talent, a gifting for you to bring to bear on the body and out there where they're burning the tires. Here for the body of God and out in the mission of God. You have something, but you're sitting on it because you're so concerned about how people will see you. You're so busy walking in that aw shucks mentality and how people will judge you and how people will see you that you just aren't doing anything. You're not being obedient, stepping up and saying, I know I'm not going to be good at this, but I feel like I could be. Look, I know I might not be good at this for a while, but I think over time I could be. I want to contribute. I want to be a contributor here and out there. You need to do it. You need to stop being consumed with yourself. You need to stop being convinced that you're sitting in neutral. You're not. According to James, you're stealing. Hear that. Hear all of it. You're stealing. I'm hearing it myself. There's some areas where I'm stealing. Right? Look, I mean, in the mission, let's just talk about the mission for a second so it doesn't get too far off course. Your neighbors, your friends, will see Jesus more correctly and more accurately because of you and your talents. Yes, you'll say things, and what you say will make them see Jesus more clearly, but your talents will paint a bigger picture too. Some of you are good administrators, and you're going to help your neighbors with their taxes or something. I'm making this stuff up. Some of you are great encouragements, and you're going to be able to step into some really gnarly situations and bring life into them, right? Some of you are really good teachers, and you're going to find a single mom with a son or a daughter that needs good teaching, that needs help. Some of you are going to be able to do some beautiful things in the mission of God, in God's mission, and people will see Jesus real beautifully. It will make sense to them because our feet are catching up with our big fat mouths. And this is tough for me. This is the one area where I think I I pull back my investment is in mission. Not church so much, but mission, yeah, I think I can. Let's look at your church. You know, I mean, and it feels like I'm harping on this. This just happens to be where James is at. The last few weeks, we've been kind of sending volleys out there. We need your help. We need your help. We need your help with this. We need your help with that. Fill out a card, on and on. And we still need help. Listen, we need dr- good drumming. Drummers, we need, that's a great example. Jeff is good, isn't he? Isn't Jeff good? Jeff, where are you? Did he leave the room? Jeff, you're so good. Y'all think he's just playing to the beat up there. He's tapping SOS up there. He's hitting SOS on that cajon. He needs help. And you don't have to jam out to Def Leppard in your car and think that you could never do something like that. We'll train you up on how to do percussion and drumming. We'll train you up on how to play the guitar. You don't have to be the best in the world. We need help up there. We're at a place now where if we have one or two musicians leave, it puts a strain on the team. Ought not to be so. Ought not to be so. We need help with that right? Listen, we need help with, now this sounds odd. This sounds like an odd thing. These are just examples. I'm just trying to provoke your thinking. We have some real beautiful families with real beautiful kids. 
We've never had an issue back there, a negative issue of someone going back there and it being weird or anything like that. I'm talking about parents. Kids are always weird. But parents, we want to keep it that way. We need security. Does that sound overprotective? I don't think it's protective enough. We need security. You know, that takes a special skill set. Not everybody can see trouble before trouble happens. I'm usually the last to the party. I'm usually walking up to a situation, hey, what's going on? Everything okay? Everyone's crying and mad. What's up? But to have somebody go, mm, that's not supposed to happen, and go and jump into that with their head on a swivel, that takes a certain type of gift set. We need that. We needed it yesterday. All right? We need things like this. We need prayer leaders. Some of you have a gift to pray and a gift to prophesy, even in your spiritual gifting. We're asking you to contribute. We have people to train that up. Darren Johnson's great at equipping people to be very faithful in the gift of prophecy and very faithful in prayer. We need these things as a church. We need these things as a church. So I'm asking you to step into the fray. Join us. Anything else is just being in the compound of paradise and everybody else is running around after chickens outside the gate, skinny as we're fat. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. I want to look at one more. I don't have time to go into time as a piece of our luxury as much as I'd love to. Time is kind of the the sacred cow pastors aren't allowed to talk to. I have a lot to say to it. James does too. But I do want to talk about wealth. It feels like we talk a lot about finances. That's because James talks a lot about finances. And this is where we happen to find ourselves again. Some of us, a lot of the church, I can speak here and I can speak generally to just the greater church, the panoramic church, don't do a very good job of painting a picture of Jesus and the gospel with our checkbooks and our budget. We don't do a very good job of that. And it hurts people. It hurts community. And it hurts mission. Now, we'll say this about this text. This is a a rabbit trail, but it's not too far off. God does not hate rich people. God does not hate rich people. God doesn't have a problem with people with a lot of money any more than he has a problem with people with a lot of time and a lot of talent. Think about it. He doesn't have a problem. It's not like poverty is the answer to being wealthy, which is how we treat it a lot of times. It's not like being rich is unrighteous and being poor is very righteous, right? Because in the Bible, don't we see a lot of wealthy people that are very righteous and we see a lot of poor people that are very unrighteous? So, poverty is not the answer to being rich. The answer to greed is not just giving everything away because greed is a heart thing. Even poor people can be greedy. We have to remember these things. He's not calling us to poverty. He's calling us to generosity. He's calling us to self-sacrifice. So hear God's heart in this, right? And I have to ask myself, as I'm putting this together and I'm looking and I'm looking, if I go through our spending patterns as a family, is it showing that eternity is real to me? Is it showing that eternity is real to my family? How about this one? Does your lifestyle look different than the lost families who make the same amount of money as you? That's not a bad gauge. Does your lifestyle look markedly different than folks who are lost but make the same exact dollar amount you do every year? Well, of course it looks different, Luke. I mean, I, I write checks. But does your lifestyle look different? Does it hurt your rhythms in the world's eyes? Does it alter your way of living? Does it change your steps? 
Does it change the way you pay your bills? Does it change things? That's what the question is. Or do you get rich by not being generous? James is talking to us here. And listen, this isn't some ploy to get legacy money. We're not trying to make payroll. We have a very airtight budget. We're just pushing right along. We're in the black. Everything's fine. We're not even passing buckets today. Okay? Not passing buckets today. We'll have them in the back. If you want to write a check, that's totally fine. We're not doing that because I don't want you guys feeling obligated. Because I know what this word can do. I know what it can evoke. It's tough. This is not about us being wealthy as a church. You know, this is typically where pastors say, and if you're a guest, just relax and don't worry about it. I'm telling you now, don't relax. Don't relax at all. Because whether you do life here or you do life somewhere else, the challenge of God is the same challenge of God to you. And I've got one shot right now with some of you who will probably never show up again. I've got one shot with you to convince you that whenever you give financially deep of your treasures, whenever you do that, it is not a ploy. It is not something that God goes, oh, now I'm really happy with you since you gave that much. It's an echo of the generosity that God already was with us. That should be the motor. Those should be the pistons firing behind us as we write checks. This is what Paul says. This is in 2 Corinthians 8. I think I have this up there too. Mm, There it is. I say this not as a command. I say this not as a command, Paul says. Catch it. But to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, taken outside of itself, that doesn't look like a very provocative passage. This is right inside of him appealing to a church to give financially. It's not making him feel guilty. He's not dropping the guilt card. He's he's appealing to the gospel. He's appealing to the gospel to be that thing that provokes us to give. So hear that. Hear that. Because it's very easy. Me and Kevin were talking about it this morning, how easy it is to feel guilted and obligated. Don't feel obligated to give or compelled to give because of what I'm saying. Let the gospel compel you and obligate you to give. Let your giving of your time, your talent, and your treasure be an echo of the deepest treasure that could have ever been poured, and it was poured into us. Christ was poured into us as a treasure, knowing that we would abuse it, knowing that we would murder and mishandle this treasure. Ought not we, ought not we invest till it hurt? That's what's going on right here. So real quickly, I want to talk about why we do this. Why do we hoard? Why do we make stuff ultimate? Why do we lay it up for ourselves to live in luxury as much as we possibly can? And the answer is very, very, very simple. We do it because we're just not satisfied with Jesus Christ as our deepest riches. So we grab more. We're just not satisfied. Once you become totally satiated and satisfied with Jesus Christ being the richest, richest riches you could ever have, you lose taste for all the luxury. It's easy to release your grip on your little treasure chest of all your things. It's easier to let go of it. It's very simple. This is what the Puritans and the early reformers would call an expulsive affection. An expulsive affection is simply loving something and having an affection so deep for Jesus Christ that it flushes all of the carnal affections that we have. And that's the only way you're going to do it. Because you know what you're left with if you don't have an expulsive affection? Works. Works. And that's how you get yourself out of this hole. And then you just got yourself in another one. You can't just try harder. This is not a performance issue. It's a heart issue. 
The answer is very simple. We need to love Jesus more. We need more Jesus. We need more Jesus. And when we grab that treasure that is Christ, then hoarding other treasures doesn't mean anything to us. It's not the diet we feed on anymore. This is, um, this is what it says in Matthew 13. This is Jesus talking to us in parables. Go ahead, you could advance it. He's talking to us in parables, and he says this. And you guys have heard this. Hear it through the lens of what we've been talking about, though. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, that's a little quirky. He covered it back up. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Sells all that he has. Sells all that he has. Everything. Why? He does it because no other treasure he ever had or could have is more beautiful than the ultimate treasure that he has found. And he's willing to dump everything, dump all of it, to get his arms around the one new beautiful treasure that he has found. You could advance the slide. This is what Matt Chandler says on this passage alone. He says, The gospel-centered leader has already given everything needed to buy the field that gains him the treasure of the gospel. Hear this now. This is such a key statement. Treasures, therefore, have been redefined for him. Treasure is a new thing. Treasure has been redefined. Jesus is the treasure. He is the prize. As a result, money and possessions have lost and are losing their grip on the heart. So what this means is, is when we fail in our investment of our time, talent, treasure, when we fail at this and we start hoarding and collecting and living off the luxury, when we fail in this, it is nothing short of a gospel fracture. There's a fracture in your love for Christ. Jesus is not your treasure as he ought to be. That's simply where it's at. That's simply where the fail is at. We don't see him as valuable enough. But let me explain to you real quickly the treasure that is Jesus Christ. You were rescued from death. You were rescued from death. Literal spiritual death. That means you were walking around Christian. You were walking around. Your heart was made of stone, according to Isaiah. Unable to feel. Unable to be concerned about your sin. You might be sorry it hurt somebody, but not really. You get over it. Just cold, dark, unresponsive. And then God arrives on the scene as your hero. And he didn't even, didn't even merit it. And he pulls out that heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh, beating and pounding. For the first time, you're able to look and go, what have I done? And then look at the gospel and say, what have you done? This is called regeneration. And he did this because he wanted to. He did this because he loves you. He purposed it according to the counsel of his own will. And he actually does more. He dusts you off. He picks you up. He gives you a new cloak with no blemishes, a new past. You have a new bloodline. You have a new name. You have a new family. No longer are you slave. No longer are you servant. You are son. You are daughter. You're in a family. And he does, does more than that. He invites you into this new kingdom and sits you at a table. Not at the end of the table, but right there where all the deep inheritance is. You are a co-inheritor of the gospel 
of the kingdom. You have all of those riches locked up. And listen, friend, this isn't a table you even deserve to be at because this is a, this is a table for family only. This is a table and a banquet for family only. And you and I were enemies. But God in his brilliance and his total benevolence sent someone to reconciliate us. The God who loves us and the people that declared war on him. And he doesn't just make us buddies. He makes us family. And he does more than that. He places you in a living community today. Walking around with people just like you. Screwed up, cracked, negative, but growing, but being perfected, right? And then he puts you in a mission as well. Both of these things totally bigger than you. Both of them so much bigger than you. Both of them storylines that are so much bigger than our little soap operas, aren't they? That means life done well is life done in plurality. Life done in community. And you're not just saved in some empty purpose. You're not just saved to sit. But you are saved into this beautiful, blooming adventure where you can get grit under your fingernails and blood and sweat and tears and be part of this adventure that you already know the ending to where one day your king will call on a big white horse he'll come in with his big crown and a sword coming out of his mouth and his robe dipped in blood and he'll be the victor and the whole thing ends that's the adventure we're recruited and drawn into and he actually did more than this he gives you the holy spirit to rattle around in your chest and in your inner man while you walk here, not something insignificant. This is the same Spirit of God that enabled Jesus Christ to do the miracles He did, to lift people from the dead that He did, to bring healing that He did. It is the same Spirit of God that raised Him up from an increpid tomb. And that Spirit of God is alive in you, bouncing around in you, enabling you to go and do as He did. And He didn't just do this because He was nice. He certainly didn't do this because you deserved it. He desired you and me when we were totally undesirable. He pursued us when we were totally unpursuable. He cherished us when we would be obstinate, belligerent, rebellious, hateful, murderous. And ultimately, he brought us to life knowing that we would put him to death. He brought us to life knowing that we would murder him and put him to death. He traded his perfect life for our very imperfect. He gave us his aromatic righteousness for our stingy, selfish unrighteousness. And the thing that gets me when I think about grace, and the thing that gets me when I think about the king and this treasure, is he did all of this knowing that you'd never bring anything to the table. <laughs> no way I can pay him back for all of that. Nothing I can do. God does not need us. We don't fulfill some hole in Him. He's not depending on us to get it right. He doesn't need us. He did it just because He loves you. He just loves you. You've got to hear that. He just loves you. He loves you. Now this is the treasure we go and sell everything for. <laughs> This is the treasure we vacate ourselves for. This is the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we sacrifice our lives for, that we don't hoard other things to neglect. This is the treasure we died on. Now, I'm going to talk to two groups of people and then I'm done. I'm going to talk to those of us who are close to Christ, Christians, and those who are not yet Christians. All right? 
I mean, some of us, me included, have not traded everything for the treasure of Jesus Christ, just the convenient things, just the convenient things. We look into the treasure chest, we pull out that which will not damage our lifestyle very much. We're glad to give that, right? I do it. But the rest we hoard because Jesus for us just simply isn't good enough. And we make excuses and we can hide behind him too. But whenever we do, it starves the body and it starves the mission. But friend, join me in this. We need the gospel to amaze us anew. We need to be weaned away from our own selfish diet. I need that. Because man, we live in a bizarre world. Where we lay up treasures for ourselves today and people are dying out there. People are dying in here, right? And James, in this crucial point in this story, this crucial point in this letter to us, is admonishing us to examine our lives and see exactly where it is that we're hoarding, exactly where it is that we are stealing. This is what I love is the very last verse. I think it zooms in on it. You can advance it. I don't know if it does or not. There it is, yeah. Very last verse, verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person and he does not resist you. Listen, this is actually talking about real people that were condemned and murdered, persecuted. Make no mistake, this is the gospel road for us today too. For we have condemned and murdered a more righteous person and that one did not resist us as well. Christ did not resist us. Friends, we've got to let that redefine our treasure, don't we? Ought, Ought not that redefine our treasure that we could condemn one that should not have been condemned and we can murder someone that should have never been murdered and yet he could not resist us but no, in the process it was part of God's glory that would birth a new nation for his glory alone ought not that redefine our treasure some of us some people who are not yet Christians some people who are far from God, some of you have not considered Jesus anything more than a person. Not Definitely not a treasure. I mean, an idea, a deep-fried teacher, <laughs> a philosophy, whatever you would think. But definitely not Lord. Definitely not King. And so you do. You store up your own luxury. I did it too. And we eat 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 and we eat. And And aren't we still famished at the end of the day? I mean, don't lie to yourself. You're hungry. Those luxuries are never going to bring exactly what your heart craves. And listen, you might be the villagers on the outside of the wall, the compound of paradise. You might. You might be looking at the church going, well, I don't even know what the big deal is. Their walk is obviously not catching up with their talk. They're real talky, not a lot of walky. So it's not like I I get it. But let me tell you, their walk, our walk, will never catch up with our talk. Ever. If you're waiting on that, you're going to be waiting a long time. The only time that our walk catches up with our talk as a church is when Jesus collects us as a unified body. We're glorified. We see as we've been seen. And we're perfect in his eyes. That is when our walk will actually meet up with our talk. Right now, it's not going to happen. But the good news for you, friend is Jesus has not asked you to have faith in his church. He's asked you to have faith in him. He's going to join you to the church. That's how that works. So yes, the predominance of this message was aimed at people who love Jesus. But he wants your heart. That same adventure, that same rescue endeavor, the same adoption, the same meal is waiting for you. It's waiting for you.
but you have to deny your own kingdom and you have to take up his. So we have a lot to pray about today.